we have a subject this afternoon of it's about time. Now, there are a couple of different ways that you can emphasise that statement, and that's why I chose it. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that as we go a little bit further through. So just before we get going, I'll give you a brief outline of what we're going to cover this afternoon. Um, I'm going to start by explaining why I believe that the Bible is a reliable and trustworthy source of information. To do this, we're going to look at two prophecies. Um, There are plenty more, but I'm going to focus in on two from the Old Testament. Uh, One is about a city called Tyre, and one is about the dream of a king called Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Then Daniel will give us a short reading to introduce kind of the second half of the talk, if you like, which really gets into the title of It's About Time. Um, We're going to explore some prophecy that has aspects that are yet to come true, and I will finish, prophecy yet to be fulfilled, and I'll finish by concluding my thoughts and hopefully uh, giving you some food for thought. Uh, I'm aiming to get get through this in about uh, half an hour or so, so to keep things moving along, I will uh, happily take any questions once we've formally closed the meeting. Okay, so why believe the Bible? I said we go to Tyre, so let's do that. If you you can find Ezekiel chapter 26, the Old Testament. Ezekiel and chapter 26. Now this is a prophecy, this this chapter. And it is about a city called Tyre. So on the map here, um, this is a modern day Google Maps image. And I have pinpointed where Tyre is. So it's right in the Middle East. The east side of the Mediterranean Sea, um, in near Lebanon, I think it's in Lebanon as is today. Um, and if we just, I'll give you some background first of all. Uh, so, around two thousand six hundred years ago, in five hundred eighty-seven BC, history. Uh, I'm going to refer to both secular history and history as we find it in the, in the Bible. So secular history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed Jerusalem. Soon after this, in 586 BC, he turned his attention to the then massively important trading city of Tyre, pinpointed on the map here. Tyre was a city of two halves. Um, it had one half onshore and one half 600 metres offshore, and I'll show you a, a zoomed-in image of that in a minute. Um, So it had a a mainland half and an island half. Nebuchadnezzar spent 13 years uh, from 586 to 573 BC besieging Tyre and eventually gave up having destroyed only the onshore part of the city. He did a pretty thorough job of the onshore part, mind you. Um, He made sure the entire city was left in ruins and remained uninhabitable. So if we look down the chapter to kind of see how Ezekiel prophesied that this would happen, I'm just going to sort of buzz through and look at a couple of verses. First of all, so chapter 26, verse 1, we get a timestamp. It came to pass in the 11th year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying. So um, this timestamp tells us when this was given. So the first day of the first month of the 11th year and um, we can find from, I believe it's, um, I haven't written down where, but it's, it's the first year, the first month of King Zedekiah's reign. 
King Zedekiah of Judah. And this is confirmed by uh, secular sources of history, such as the Babylonian Chronicles, as being the beginning of the year 586 BC, so directly before Nebuchadnezzar himself arrived on the scene. Uh, Verse 2. Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me. I shall be filled. She is laid waste. So we're told that this would happen uh, soon after a defeat of Jerusalem. Ezekiel would know this as a fact as it had literally just happened, uh, given the timestamp that we have. Um, So this wasn't a prophecy. It was just an explanation of God's reasoning in verse 2. Then we flick down a bit further, just get some details about what's going to happen to Tyre. Uh, Verse 6. Also her daughter villages which are in the field shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, So the villages on the mainland uh, are going to be destroyed. And then skim a bit further down to verse 9. He will direct his battering rams against your walls. And with his axes, he will break down your towers. So we have this description here of a siege, a siege situation um, during which there's going to be some form of destruction. Um, and that all kind of appears to fit with what we know of Nebuchadnezzar. He came along, he destroyed the mainland half, he laid siege, and, uh, and that was all well and good. That's what we know from secular sources of history. But then if you come down a little bit further... Uh, to verse 12 it seems like we're going a bit off track and uh, we've got an inaccuracy here in the biblical account so verse 12 they whoever they are will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise they will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses they will lay your stones your timber and your soil in the midst of the water now that didn't happen Nebuchadnezzar didn't do any of that Um, so what are we getting at here? What have we uh, kind of uncovered? Well, let's <clears throat> just reread verses 3 and 5 of the same chapter for a bit more detail. It says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. <clears throat> and we come a bit further down, the end of verse 5. Um, I have spoken, says the Lord God, it shall become a plunder for the nations. So, we've just met Nebuchadnezzar and he's done the mainland half. But then here in verses 3 and 5 we have mention of multiple nations, which <clears throat> hasn't happened yet. We haven't had multiple nations attack Tyre. So what exactly is going on? If we fast forward about 250 years to 332 BC, we find Alexander the Great appearing on the scene. Uh, He was a Greek. (coughs) Apologise, I'm losing my voice. He wanted to, the, the, the story goes from secular history, Alexander wanted to worship in a temple that was on the island. So I've got here a zoomed in image. The mainland's on the right-hand side, and the island city of Tyre is on the left. And this is where all of the Tyrenians now lived, since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the onland uh, half. So Alexander comes along, and he decides he wants to worship in a temple that is on this island. And the <coughs> inhabitants of Tyre 
basically tell him to get lost. Um, and he doesn't uh, take too kindly to this. So mm-hmm. what he does is he goes to the old city of Tyre on the mainland, sweeps up all of the rubble that Nebuchadnezzar had left 250 years before, and launches it in the sea and builds a causeway. Builds a causeway out to the new island uh, that they now all live on, which allows him to get his siege machines across to the walls. And... Um, and completely flattens the place. He completely destroys the new city of Tyre that was on the island. <coughs> Even though it was heavily fortified, it was no match for his siege machines once he'd managed to get them up close. An interesting point here. If you skim your eye down to verse 14 of this chapter, verse, uh, of chapter 26 of Ezekiel, verse 14, You'll find it specifically says, I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets. And you shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. This is a Google Maps image taking this year of the city of Tyre. And as you can see, it's built. It exists. So does this prophecy fall on its face? Well, no, actually. Direct your attention to that area in red, and you'll find that that is the original city of Tyre, still unbuilt, still left as was, in the midst of what is now a thriving, populous city. Um, (coughs) This is the original um, island, and uh, Alexander's Causeway was somewhere about here, and over time, um, the silt and sand have pushed up against it and basically built up um, a new piece of land out to the island. So the island used to cut off about here. And now the mainland and the island are joined. Which is quite interesting. <coughs> so, in line with this, this chapter, we had a city called Tyre. We had multiple nations coming and attacking it. And the result was that there is now a ruined city that has never been built on since. So, it's interesting. It's, a, it's an example of a prophecy that had a short-term fulfilment. So, pretty much the year after... Um, Ezekiel said it, Nebuchadnezzar came along and it also had a long term fulfilment 250 years later Alexander the Great came along and finished the job so it's an example of um, prophecies that have multiple lengths of fulfilment in them and that time gap wasn't mentioned in the prophecy at all it was basically just a full stop um, so it's something we have to look out for when we're, when we're reading uh, prophecy within the Bible that it can be just huge gaps that aren't, aren't mentioned but it will all still come true Okay, I said we'd look at two, two examples. So here is Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel. This is the next book in the Bible, <coughs> Ezekiel, Daniel. And we are focusing in on chapter 2. But, in fact, I'll direct your attention just briefly to the first verse of chapter 1. So for context, <coughs> Daniel... 1 verse 1. In the third year of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now does that sound familiar? Yes, because we've just talked about it. It's the same king and it's the same um, account of besieging of Jerusalem. And that is the point at which both Daniel and Ezekiel were taken captive into Babylon. So, chapter 2. 
We know what's happening and when it's happening. <clears throat> Chapter 2 and the first three verses. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And the story goes that basically nobody could tell him really what was going on <coughs> until Daniel pops up later in chapter, verse 27 onwards. Daniel pops up and um, essentially says, I can't explain it, but God can through me. Uh, and goes on to, to give a description of this image that you see here on the screen. This is obviously an artist's impression. Uh, it's just somebody's idea of how it might have looked. Um, but it does seem accurate to to the account that we have. So what um, what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream is told in verse 32. Um, this image, <coughs> which he has seen, his head was of fine gold, his chest and arms were of silver, as you can see, his belly and thighs of bronze, his legs of iron, and his feet partly iron and partly clay. So you have these different metals defining different parts of this image's body. And this statue is used to kind of play out a, a series of events. Um, it's, it's a prophecy that God has given um, for, uh, of what is going to happen to the nations of the world. So in verses 37 to 42, we have the explanation of what goes on. <clears throat> Verse 37, let's start off with, this is uh, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, are king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, of this image, you are a head of gold. And then it follows on that each of the other metals refers to another nation. That, um, that comes up at some chronological point after uh, the previous. So you start off with the golden head, the Babylonians, and you work your way down. And we're given a full run through of <coughs> uh, the characteristics of these, uh, these different nations. So what does this mean? What, what do we have in secular history that can kind of make sense of this strange image with different nations taking over power from each other? Well, history tells us <coughs> that in 539 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, defeated the Babylonian Empire before his successor, uh, King Darius, was deposed in 331 BC by Alexander the Great of Greece. So you have, in what I just said there basically, I've, I've, I've rattled through the, the belly and arms of silver and the, the thighs of bronze. So you have the Persians, the Medes and Persians here, and you have the Greeks here. Um, and following this, in 168 BC, the Roman Empire was established as the world's main ruling power. Uh, so that would be the legs. After Perseus, the Greek king, was defeated at the Battle of Pydna. Uh, so therefore, the two, the two legs refer to the Roman Empire. It is interesting to note <coughs> that the size of each of these empires exceeds that of its predecessor. So here's Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. 
It's got quite a large spread um, across the Middle East. <coughs> then we come to the Persians, slightly wider spread. Down to the Greeks, wider still. Finally, the Romans, pretty much half the world. So you can see this sort of this ever-expanding um, detail going on here. So that leaves the question. <coughs> Oh, okay. No, we'll talk about this first. Uh, <laughs> um, just to talk about the Romans for a little minute, um, to give you a bit of background behind them, it's interesting to note that in 285 AD, Emperor Diocletian decided that the Roman Empire was too big to govern centrally from Rome, Rome. so he split the empire pretty much down the middle, as you can see with the yellow half and the purple half here. Um, the west was ruled by Rome, and the east was ruled by Byzantium, which is later became Constantinople, and uh, is now known as Istanbul in Turkey. And that kind of makes sense when you think about the image, because the image had two legs. So it's almost like there's two kind of halves of this ruling power that are present. So, the Roman Empire is long gone, leaving us at the feet of the statue, which, as we can see from Daniel chapter 2, is the final state of the statue before it's destroyed. <clears throat> the mixture of iron and clay tells us of a mixture of strong and weak powers that don't bond particularly well with one another, and that neither the iron or the clay are particularly dominant. If you look around the world today, there are 196 separate countries, depending on whether or not you count Taiwan, there's a bit of a dispute between them and China just now. 196 separate countries if you count Taiwan, 195 if you don't. Of those 196 countries, 193 members, uh, 193 are members of the United Nations, which, from its website, um, <coughs> exists to confront issues such as peace and security, climate change, sustainable development, human rights, disarmament, terrorism, humanitarian and health emergencies, gender equality, government, governance, uh, food production and more. The only countries not in the UN currently are Taiwan, Kosovo and the Vatican City, which is a permanent non-member um, observer state. So they get to go to all the meetings but not say anything. However, um, as I'm sure you're aware, the UN doesn't seem to hold much authority in some countries. Uh, North Korea are in the news a lot, uh, constantly, uh, for violating various UN sanctions uh, against nuclear power. And Iran, Israel and China have also been widely reported as ignoring various sanctions and resolutions. Um, Donald Trump, our new American president, has referred to the UN as just a club for people to have a good time and is said to consider the UN to be completely ineffectual. Um, as with iron and clay in real life, it would appear that the bond holding the mixture together isn't particularly strong. So, <clears throat> what is next in Daniel 2? What happens uh, after this all goes down? Verse 44. In the days of these kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. 
Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it had broken pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. So we're led on to hear um, a talk of a final permanent kingdom, one that won't be succeeded uh, in the way that the image was constantly, there's always somebody coming up after. There's this this uh, kingdom won't have a succession. It'll be ruled over by God himself, and the start of this happens <coughs> with the world powers of the time being crushed by a huge rock cut out without hands, as described in verses 34 and 35 above. So... The question that I would like to ask then is, what is this stone and when can we expect this to happen? Because if we see ourselves as being at the feet, then surely it's sometime soon. That was just a, an image of all the world's nations. Um, so with that thought, hold that thought, um, and Daniel's going to give us a quick reading. So we can lead on to the next half. Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time the night of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Okay, so we've just read of... <coughs> Quite explicitly, the return of Jesus. Before I uh, go and delve into uh, prophecies of Jesus uh, that, that have been given uh, in Matthew 24 here, I just want to show you something that I think is quite interesting. So, this is a pie chart that I've made. Um, it's the books of the Bible. Um, now, I wasn't really sure how to size them because there's not really a set way of doing it. Um, obviously, in the original manuscripts, they didn't have chapters. But I've done it relative size and chapters to give just a rough idea of um, 
how the Bible looks when you split it up. So, we've taken two prophecies from the Old Testament. <clears throat> so if we ignore the entirety of the Old Testament, uh, which contains hundreds of prophecies that uh, look into the return of Jesus, such as Nebuchadnezzar's image and um, the, the, the other prophecy about Tyre, um, and we ignore the four gospel books that tell the first high... Uh, the first-hand eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. So that's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We've just read from Matthew here. If we ignore all of that, we're left with this little chunk. <clears throat> um, that is the rest of the New Testament from Acts through to Revelation. Um, by chapter, it's roughly a sixth or 17% of the Bible. Don't try and read this slide. This is... You might be able to take kind of if you blur up your eyes. You'll see that some of this is black and some of it is red. All of the red parts are direct prophecies about Jesus' return in that section of the Bible. So if you completely disregard the majority of the Bible, which I strongly recommend you don't do, and if you completely disregard that and look purely from Acts to Revelation, 17% of the Bible, um, this, is, this is what you'll find about the return of Jesus. I'll happily provide anybody with a note of these, these references afterwards if you want to have a look through. There are 44 verses in total. <clears throat> that is 44 prophecies within 17% of the Bible that refer very specifically to one specific event, the return of Jesus. Remember that some things are prophesied once and once only in the Bible, um, and yet still they've come to pass, they've been proved to be good prophecies. So why then is there such a huge emphasis on Jesus and on his return? Why is there such a focus on this within the Bible? <clears throat> so, that was my short aside. Just to kind of prick your interest. Matthew 24, just read it. Um, and we kind of, ideally we would have read the whole chapter, but it's a big chapter. So we just dived into small parts of it <clears throat> to get a feel for what's going on. So the first part that Daniel read was from verse 4 to verse 8. Um, and verse 3 gives us context as to, to what this is. Um, the disciples come to Jesus privately as he sits on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, <clears throat> and say, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus tells them. He says there's going to be quite a few things that happen. Things to look out for. Verse 5, people claiming to be Jesus. Verse 6, wars and people talking about wars. And verse 7, he lists off famines, pestilences, or epidemics as we now call them, uh, earthquakes in various places. <clears throat> and all of the above are described as the beginning of sorrows. So, what can we find about these things? Um, people claiming to be Jesus. According to sources cited and collated on Wikipedia... At least 26 people have come forward claiming to be Jesus Christ in the past century with various levels of success. Some have um, successfully convinced others to follow them, setting up their own sects or cults, um, whilst others have used it um, as a kind of some divine reasoning behind um, the crimes that they've committed. For instance, this uh, guy on the left here is called Oscar Ramiro Ortega Hernandez. Um, he fired nine shots at the White House in 2011 
uh, believing that he was Jesus sent to kill Barack Obama, who he referred to as the Antichrist. Oh, missed. <laughs> On the right is Alan John Miller with his partner Mary Suzanne Luck. You can probably see how this is going. Uh, he is a former Jehovah's Witness elder who claims to be Jesus Christ and uh, his partner is Mary Magdalene, um, who is another character from the Gospel record. Uh, they lead a movement called the Divine Truth Movement in Australia and they regularly hold seminars to spread their message. They're, they're quite a, a successful uh, cult over in Australia. So people are claiming to be Jesus Christ. What else? Wars and rumours of wars. Well, this is a map um, that shows countries currently at war. So this is not individual conflicts, this is just the countries that are at war. So like the UK would have one dot on it. Um, today, there are 67 countries actively involved in 746 wars across the globe. 67 countries, 746 wars. That's more than 10 each. Um, and there's also <clears throat> the constant rumour and threat of further wars in the news with like, the nuclear threat from uh, North Korea, the terrorist threat from uh, Islamic State and, uh, and others. So wars and rumours of wars. We have them too today. What else did Jesus say? Famines. In the last hundred years, uh, just looking at the last hundred years, so since healthcare has kind of started to improve, and um, yeah, healthcare techniques have started to improve, even with the advances in farming techniques um, and cross-border charity and trade, there have been at least 40 severe famines, which um, the, the rating of a famine is kind of a bit fluffy, but a severe famine has resulted in I think it's thousands of deaths as opposed to tens or hundreds. Um, you can see as recently as 20, 2011 and 2012, there's severe famine in several countries across West Africa. Um, and, I mean, you can see on the screen there's some pretty sobering statistics up there. Um, millions of people dying as a result of not having the food that they need in China, North Korea, Democratic Republic of the Congo... Um, and uh, there's a whole load of African countries listed up there. Um, millions of people in this day and age still dying of famine. <clears throat> Pestilence. Some of these names will be familiar. Uh, Ebola. In 21 months, Ebola spread throughout Liberia, Guinea, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Mali and the USA, killing a reported just under 12,000 people. Um, there was a Zika virus that was kicking around during the Rio Olympics. Uh, there was confirmed cases in 57 countries or territories across America, across the Caribbean, <coughs> the Western Pacific and Africa. HIV and AIDS, um, they're widely reported and globally 70 million people are currently infected and last year 1.1 million died as a result of HIV and AIDS. Malaria, similarly, half the world's population is at risk. And in 2015 alone, there were 212 million cases and at least half a million deaths. So, pestilences, epidemics. 
they're occurring right now also. Earthquakes in various places in verse 7. So, last year, 2016, um, there were 43 severe earthquakes recorded. Again, it's a bit of a fluffy description because it takes into account not only the magnitude, but also the impact on humans. 43 severe earthquakes were recorded, um, so they're at least magnitude 7 on the Richter scale um, and or caused fatalities. The overall total value of earthquakes is much higher, uh, with hundreds per month occurring even in the UK. This graph... Um, this graph shows uh, the trend in seismic activity Uh, the line you can see is percentage activity so that's increasing Um, and the bars are the average magnitude of any given quake Um, so we start here at 1997 and we work our way along right to last year 2016 so you can see the general trend since in in the last 20 years is for more earthquakes of lower magnitude that's a general t- trend. Obviously, it's not, it's not the case for every single one. Um, so since I was born, there have been more earthquakes, but um, they have been lower on the, on the magnitude scale. So earthquakes in various places. Um, but then again, what does various places mean? Because you have not only the physical earthquakes that are happening across the globe and has been happening, um, but you've also got... <coughs> This sort of thing. This is an article from The Guardian. So long 2016, the year of the political earthquake. This is from the UKIP uh, website. UKIP on course to deliver a political earthquake. This is the Wall Street Journal. Trump's political earthquake. Um, <clears throat> this is a Fabian Society, which is a political think tank. Again, political earthquake. The tele- Telegraph, political earthquake. ITV News, Earthquake, Um, The Politico, um, which is a a politics magazine, The Pope's Political Earthquake, Financial Times, again, talking about political earthquakes. So, these earthquakes maybe don't just refer to physical, the ground shaking. Um, It's it's literally everywhere. This is, um, I typed this into Google and this was the first five or ten results that came up. Um, a lot of, a lot of them are specifically related to the independence referendum, Brexit, um, Corbynism, uh, an unelected prime minister in Theresa May, although now she is elected, uh, and then further abroad with Trump in the US, Marie Le Pen in France, and Pope Francis himself causing a stir. So, the phrase "political earthquake" is a popular one. So. <coughs> With these things that we've looked at, we seem to be ticking all the boxes. All these things that Jesus talked about that would happen at the beginning of the end are happening now and are happening a lot now. So, what does that mean for us, really? Well, I've written here, um, it's about time for Jesus to return. Which... Yes, you could say it's about time for Jesus to return. But also you can spin that statement round and say, for us, it's all about time. How do we use our time? What are we doing with what time there is left until this return of Jesus? So what pointers does the prophecy that we've read through give us? Uh, If you flick through 
Matthew chapter 24, towards the end of the chapter. Verse 42, Daniel read this for us. Verse 42, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we're told to watch, we're told to be ready. Verse 45 goes to talk about um, being a faithful and wise servant. But what are we watching and waiting for? And how are we being faithful and wise? (coughs) Well, I'm not going to answer those questions today. Because my answer to you is that if you want to know that, you need to read the Bible. I've put to you why I think the Bible is trustworthy. We've looked at a couple of prophecies in the Old Testament. um, Prophecy concerning Tyre, prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar's image. And I've shown to you that they are proved by secular historical accounts to have occurred exactly as they're written for us in the Bible. And not just not just um, fulfilled, but fulfilled to a ridiculous level of detail, uh, even down to full stops, which, uh, which is always interesting to look into. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to make up your own mind. So the one thing I will say... It's all about time for us. The time we have is limited. We know we're given pointers as to how we should use our remaining time. Watch, be ready, be faithful and wise. But how? Read the Bible and find out for yourself. Um, I put up this uh, this photo of a Bible and then realised that actually is no use like that because the only way that you're going to find the answers to these questions is if you open the Bible and read it for yourself. So, my challenge to you then According to the Bible, it's about time for Jesus to return. So what are you going to do about it? Thank you.